0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. William Inboden, the executive director of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. Roger and Will discuss his new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, which is quickly becoming regarded as the authoritative comprehensive history of the Reagan administration's foreign policy. Dr. Will Imboden, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Roger. Great to be here with you.
0: Well, you're the executive director and William Powers, Jr. Chair at the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. But today you're here because you are the author of The Peacemaker. The, oh, we got two of them right there. Look at that. Two, that's right. The, what is being referred to now is the authoritative treatment of Reagan's foreign policy. Congratulations on this real achievement, Will.
1: How long did it take you to write this book? So, You know, All Told, Roger, is about a decade. Uh, I was uh, telling someone earlier today that my first research trip to the Reagan Library was the fall of 2012, so 10, 10 years ago. Uh, I didn't start really intensive research and writing on the book until about three years after that, so it was about six or seven years of pretty intensive work, but the actual genesis of it is, is a decade ago. So it was a labor of love, but I'm so glad it's finally out now.
0: Well, after reading this book, one of the things that stands out to me is not just a comprehensive treatment of the subject, Reagan's foreign policy, but how readable it is. You're from the academy. Presently, you're this professor. This is not what I would have expected. In other words, to make it so readable and accessible for the non-scholar.
1: Well, thanks. I'm I'm very grateful for that. You're you're very kind. Uh, You know, I had not done this kind of narrative writing before, but it was by design. Uh, I think uh, partly because I wanted to reach a broader audience. I think President Reagan's story, certainly the story of his foreign policy, is something that, you know, all Americans should be aware of. I did not want to confine it only to my academic colleagues. But there's another reason as well is, as you know from being very familiar with this era, the 80s, the waning days of the Cold War, the Reagan administration, it's a very dramatic time. Uh, You know, we know now that the story ends well with America's peaceful victory in the Cold War, but at the time, Reagan and his team weren't sure that it was going to end so well, and they lived every day under the, you know, the threat, the terror of of nuclear destruction, the uncertainty of how their policies were going to work out, you know, constant criticism from critics, you know, on the left and right and center, and many other challenges too, you know, terrorism, wars in the Middle East, uh, economic challenges, uh, you know, challenges in Asia, and I thought it would be a disservice to President Reagan's legacy if I just tried to retell that in dry, ponderous academic prose, and so tried to recapture for readers what it felt like at the time, um, with all these different issues crashing in, uh, with the uncertainty of where it was going to go, knowing that the stakes were just incalculably high. Um, and I think that helps us Hopefully it makes it a more readable story, but also helps us appreciate just how tremendous President Reagan's accomplishments were.
0: Definitely readable. Thank you for not going down the route of dry academic prose. Uh, we're all benefiting from that as we read your work. Address one other item and, and kind of why now? Mm-hmm. Why is this the time perhaps to write this story, to share what happened back, which is, you know, 30 plus years ago. Is there something going on in the archives and the information that's available? Maybe now's the time where you have the hindsight so you can look at things a little more evenly. You know, the prejudices of the past are are truly behind us. What's happening right now in the world of Reagan scholarship that, makes this the right time to to
1: write a book. Yeah, you touched on some of the important things there. I think this really was the ideal time to take on a book like this for for a couple of reasons. One is just the craft of historical scholarship. We had to, I think, wait till enough years had passed since um, President Reagan left office to be able to assess that time with a little bit more critical distance, a little bit more objectivity, I hope, knowing how a lot of the story uh, played out, being somewhat removed from the partisan passions of the day. But also, it's just been the last few years that quite a few uh, new documents have been declassified. We now have a lot more insight into, you know, previously top-secret National Security Council meeting minutes, um, the transcripts of President Reagan's meetings with foreign heads of state, uh, CIA assessments, things like that. A lot of those documents hadn't previously been available to earlier generations of scholars and are now. And, you know, a special note of appreciation to the wonderful staff at the Reagan Library and the archivists there have done so much to process these. Uh, but it's also recent enough that many of the old Reagan hands are still with us, and I was able to interview so many of them and, and capture their memories while they while they still have them and while they're while they're still here with us. In fact, those interviews
0: you had are listed in the the back of the book, and it, it's quite comprehensive. This research you mentioned, the Cracker Jack team at the Reagan Library. I mean, you relocated there. Tell us a little bit of the process and research in in. You know, producing something this comprehensive. Here, I'm going to go, you know, to show you just quite how much time uh, it took to produce this. And in fact, you and I had a conversation. There were some pages left in the cutting room floor, were there not?
1: Yeah, uh, I, if readers are daunted by the size of this book, and I hope <laughs> you won't be put off by that, uh, just be reassured the the first draft was a heck of a lot longer, probably almost almost twice as long. Um, You'll so, have to release the unabridged version. Yeah, wait for the director's cut. So, but my editor uh, wisely admonished me that we needed to cut it down, and he was he was he was right right to do so. But um, but yeah, all told, I spent probably somewhere between six and eight months out at the Reagan Library uh, in residence there. You know multiple trips, um, uh, you know, going through Tens of thousands of pages of, of documents, uh, and of course, didn't. There's no way I was able to get through all of them. But the, again, the wonderful staff there helped guide me into what they thought were the most important collections, and so uh, that really forms the bulk of the research. But also a lot of time at the Hoover Institution at, at Stanford. You know where uh, you know, Condi Rice is the director. A lot of the records of old Reagan hands are there. A lot of time at the Library of Congress, uh, Princeton, some other university archives, and so it was a it was a coast to coast, nationwide. Uh, you know several years a research endeavor but i think it was necessary to be able to tell the full story
0: well so let's talk about the story and and i love the title of the book and in some ways of course the peacemaker the book ends the way you begin and close a story the book here to me is is quite significant and you start with reagan at westminster And for our listeners and viewers, that's the June 1982 speech. And you do such a great job. This is the narrative that you were talking about at the outset, showing all of the stuff going on that really made this presidency feel like a mess and just, oh, you could be overwhelmed with the challenges. You read the pages in your book and you're like, this is, you know, how are you not paralyzed by the many crises? And then Reagan delivers a speech about this view of freedom and how, this is going to be the animating principle that will define his foreign policy. That's the beginning. Then the end is Gorbachev paying respects to President Reagan after he passed when he's lying waiting at, in, in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. Yeah. And he refers to him as the
1: peacemaker. Peacemaker.
0: Talk to us about the significance of this title and kind of the, the messaging you're delivering uh, to all who think they understood Reagan, uh, but what he
1: was really about. So, sure thing. And, you know, I've got to say, the, the title came to me a few years into the process of this book. And I've been playing around with, with some different titles. So, it's not like one I thought of it at first. And it's one that emerged over the course of the research because it was such a recurring theme. I found it in, you know, President Reagan's diaries, his, his private meetings with people, and of course, some of these public testimonials. And it being clear, he was very committed to this vision of, of bringing peace. Uh, but it was peace on Favorable terms for America. It was peace through strength, and it was peace through peace through freedom, uh, and and yet his critics, you know, often derided him as as a bellicose warmonger, uh, as you know, aggressive and, and and dangerous, and that was certainly you know the strength part and the confrontational part of his policy, and we can talk about that importance, but they often missed that ultimately this is a vision of bringing peace, uh, and and so I the title is not meant to be ironic at all, and yeah, it largely comes from Gorbachev. This was the tribute that that his you know, formidable adversary turned friend and partner for peace, you know, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, the tribute he paid to, to President Reagan at, at his, uh, you know, at his at his death. But there's one other place where the, the title comes from as well. I'm just going to, you know, read it so I get the exact sentence right here uh, so reader, readers can appreciate it. And this is President Reagan's uh, kind of final foreign policy speech in December of 1992 after he's already left office and he's surveying the peaceful end of the Cold War and, you know, the the great um, success it was for American foreign policy. But he's, He's not resting on his laurels, he's not. Uh, he's worried about complacency, and uh, as he's surveying the forthcoming challenges of the next decade and urging his country to still be committed to international leadership, he says this, "'The work of freedom is never done, hmm. and the task of the peacemaker is never complete.'" And those were his, like I said, final foreign policy words in, in public life and kind of his charge to his country and, and all, all of us today. And again, the the recurrence of that term peacemaker. So I thought, okay, that, that certainly, since that's how he wanted to see himself, that's how Gorbachev saw him, I think that's a suitable title for a book.
0: And it was also, I think, the kind of what animated him and his thinking was... There's different kinds of peace available to us. Yeah. In his mind, it, there was only one that was worthwhile. That was a peace where you didn't negotiate away your freedom or freedom in your future. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, and that that early on throughout his presidency, it seems he's wrestling with that. Like, what kind of peace are we going to realize here? The peace of détente, for example, we can we could jump to that. Yeah. Um,
1: was not something he was willing to accept. So talk about the kind of peace he wanted. Yeah, this is a very important distinction to draw because sometimes that term peace can be misconstrued, but for Reagan it was not peace through surrendering to aggression. It was not peace through appeasement. It was not peace through detente and just trying to manage relations and coexist with the Soviet Union. You know, I'll be very clear, he saw the greatest threat to peace in the world as Soviet communism. And I I think he was right in in seeing it that way. Backed, of course, by the formidable might of of the Soviet army and the world's largest, largest nuclear arsenal. And so his vision for peace was, like I said, not appeasing or or surrendering to that, but rather bringing it to an end. Um, And yet he wanted the Cold War to stay cold. He he was, you know, also wanted to avoid the Cold War turning hot and turning into, you know, nuclear destruction of of the entire world. And so so for him, the means to getting to peace was through a strong military, through support for for freedom around the world, especially freedom behind the Iron Curtain, uh, and through that unrelenting pressure on the Soviet system uh, until it would crack crack apart. Uh, And only then, he thought, could true peace be achieved when that threat to peace, Soviet communism, was gone. As you're thinking about Reagan,
0: the peacemaker, and doing your research, you come into this, of course, Will, with tremendous knowledge and understanding of the subject. But as you shared with us, you're in the archives, you're going through documents, you no doubt are discovering new things, or appreciating pieces of the man, perhaps, that you didn't think were as important, but after doing the research, you realize how pivotal they were in his administration and and, in his priorities. Anything in particular come to mind that, after researching and writing the book, Now, you kind of appreciate more you see now in a way that you didn't see at the outset of the project.
1: Yeah, so many things I could say on that, Roger. I mean, you know, when you spend so much time researching something like this, there's new revelations almost every week. But I'll I'll just highlight three, and I'll I'll do these quickly. So, the first was, I went into the project with a pretty favorable assessment of President Reagan and a general sense that he was a strategic visionary but was not very involved in the day-to-day policy details. And that was actually only partially true. One of the surprises was, on the big issues that mattered, especially negotiations with the Soviets, his overall Soviet strategy, he became very involved in the details. You know, he had scripted many of his own talking points. He was very involved in writing many of his most important speeches. uh, And also, you know, became quite well-versed in the details of, you know, a a number of uh, arms control policies and America's nuclear arsenal and the Soviet one as well. And so, uh, I realized this was a commander-in-chief who was more involved on a number of the key details, so that's one. The second one that I came to appreciate is just how intentional his strategy was, especially in his first term, of pressuring the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader. You know, there's, a, in some ways, a never-ending debate over who deserves more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War, Reagan or Gorbachev. They're both essential. Um, I, I give more weight to, to Reagan. But what I had not seen, you know, any scholars pick up on uh, before, um, and what I think is pretty clear from the research evidence is from 1981, President Reagan is pressuring the Soviet system not just to weaken it, not just to starve it of resources, not just to crack it of heart, but to produce a reformist leader that he could negotiate with. And it takes four years, right? You know, mm of dies, and Dropov dies, Chernyenko dies, and then in March of '85, along comes Gorbachev. And Gorbachev is a you know unique figure, and a, you know very admirable in many ways, and he's a product and part of internal dynamics in the Soviet system, but. I think we need to prove President Reagan some more credit and more agency there for his part in helping to encourage Gorbachev to come along and then being willing to recognize Gorbachev um, as a as a mm. reformer. The final thing is the importance of religious faith and President Reagan's deep Christian faith, his deep commitment to religious freedom, uh, his um, his belief in God's God's guidance and care during the Cold War, um, his loathing of Soviet atheism. It wasn't just communism that he that he detested, but particularly its mandated atheism, which was so so vicious in its persecution of Christians and Jews and Muslims. Uh, so the um, his personal religious commitments and the religious dimension of the Cold War, that was one other surprise in, in my research.
0: I want to go back to the piece on Gorbachev because this peacemaker theme, when he decides this is a person he can build a relationship with and, and perhaps accomplish what Paul Leto and others have have pointed out. President Reagan always wanted to do, which was rid the world of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Right? There is pushback, mm-hmm. significant pushback from Reaganites. Yeah, from his Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. Who you write never accepted, and so could support um, the engagement with Gorbachev and his own national security staff. Yeah, talk to us about kind of the the second term kind of move towards. Uh, engagement with the Soviets and Gorbachev has to have, and you, you capture this, this kind of partnership with Schultz and the way, uh, he managed or didn't manage those who are unwilling to accept that on his own team
1: yeah yeah as well as among the allies and we okay. well, you know we'll, we'll talk talk about that too so it's a remarkable story the first point I do want to be really emphatic on though is I think that President Reagan's strategy uh, was quite consistent throughout his eight years and you and I've talked about this before and I know I know you agree is even while he was uh, doing outreach to the Soviets and then embracing Gorbachev as this negotiating partner that hopefully was partnered to reduce nuclear weapons and eventually bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. He was unrelenting in his pressure on Gorbachev and on the Soviet system. He was unrelenting in the military modernization, unrelenting in the Reagan doctrine and its support for anti-communist forces uh, uh, around the world, unrelenting in the economic pressure, uh, unrelenting in the rhetorical pressure. You know, tear down this wall is in June of 87, right? Um, uh, But at the same time, he is embracing Gorbachev as a partner for peace and negotiating and a negotiator, and saying, "Let's eliminate all intermediate-range nuclear uh, weapons. Let's let's reduce and even eliminate as much as we can all other uh, nuclear weapons as well." And this causes great consternation among a number of key members of you know the the senior Reagan national security team, uh, you know, Point, Point Admiral Poindexter and Secretary Weinberger, and also among a number of the key allies. You know, Prime Minister Thatcher is not happy about this. Mitterrand is not happy about it. Chancellor Cole in West Germany is not happy about it. They worry they're going to be losing the American uh, sec- nuclear umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, they worry they might be more at the mercy of, of Soviet conventional forces. Uh, and so, again, it just shows uh, that, you know, President Reagan was a man of his very strong, very strong convictions, even uh, against resistance from his own team. You know, you know a number of uh, conservative interest groups and conservatives on the Hill were also very skeptical of this, but he believed it was the right thing to do. And he continued. He was very steadfast in, in pushing, pushing forward.
0: Oh, no doubt. I mean, the intellectual right Attacked him for this, you know, and and and, uh, appeasement became the the attack language of some on the right uh, when when he pursued this uh, the the diplomacy. We were talking before we began uh, this chat, highlighting the three S's, you know, speeches, strategy, and 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 summits. Uh, Those were kind of the the tools for Reagan's foreign policy and statecraft. Perhaps just like unpack a little bit each of those and how. Reagan used it. You mentioned earlier how, you know, he was far more engaged as you've uh did your research you saw in, in- in some of the details and getting in that and more than I think uh, you gave him credit for at the outset of this project, but
1: talk about how these tools were utilized by him in, in his presidency. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very clear, especially in the first term, that he's very involved in crafting a pretty sophisticated full spectrum strategy toward, towards the Soviet Union. Uh, we, it's codified in two really important uh, documents, NSDD-32, NSDD-75, uh, you know, for for the specialists out there, um, but, but and those are really springing from Reagan's, Reagan's on mind because he's got some very capable staff, uh, you know Dick Pipes, Tom Reed, later Jack Matlock, and of course you know Bill Clark, the National Security Advisor, uh, others helping him with it, him with this. But um, you know it's a comprehensive strategy designed not just to coexist with the Soviet Union, not just to manage relations with it, but to bring it to what what I call a, a negotiated surrender. This this dual track of pressure and out and outreach. Um, uh, but then uh, in his in his speeches, President Reagan is very committed to communicating this to the American. Public, communicating it to allies, and then communicating directly with the Soviet leadership and the Soviet people. And uh, you know, we could do hours of episodes just on his speeches. But just a couple of themes I want to highlight is you can trace a series of his speeches as a sustained argument against. Uh, Marxism-Leninism, a sustained argument showing the intellectual bankruptcy, uh, the moral depravity of this system. So, uh, you know, his 1981 uh, Notre Dame speech, where he says it's some bizarre chapter in human history that we will transcend, the 82 Westminster speech, where he says it's going to end up on the ash heap of history, 83, the evil empire, you know, going on all the way through through tear down this wall. And yet at the same time, he's also giving in in some of those same speeches and other speeches, sustained outreach to the Soviet Union. uh, you know the the March of '83 uh, Strategic Defense Initiative uh, speech. He's also saying, "Look, I want to find a Soviet leader I can partner with to reduce and even eliminate nuclear weapons. We don't want nuclear war." January of '84 is outreach to them, saying, "I want to negotiate with you." And again, we could go through these as well. And so the speeches were not just happy talk, not just you know beautiful turns of phrase, although he certainly is that. It's a sustained argument laying out his pressure on the Soviet Union and then his outreach to them as well.
0: The speeches were also something that he spent time on, right? So they were obviously kind of communicating with key stakeholders, but mm-hmm. where he actually made his mark, perhaps far more than I don't know in a in a NSC meeting. Mm-hmm. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. And again, this goes back to obviously his his days in Hollywood as as an actor. He's got a you know great sense for for the drama of history, for the power of words to move people. But also, I think he's underappreciated as a man of ideas. Uh, and you know, we we see this throughout the 1970s, reading all the transcripts of his radio addresses that he would write himself himself. So he comes into office with a pretty well formed, sophisticated worldview. Uh, again, about the virtues of free society about the bankruptcy of, of communism. And so, when it comes time to give major speeches, he's got a very capable team of speechwriters, you know, Tony, Rob, uh, Tony Dolan, uh, Peter Robinson, Peggy Noonan. Uh, but they themselves will tell you that he was personally very involved. And you can see this in the archives when you trace, you know, the many edits of speeches. You know, his Westminster address, he personally wrote at least 50% of that text him, himself.
0: We actually have, you can see the handwritten.
1: Uh, yeah, pages. We were looking at that earlier earlier today. I know. And of course, the, the tear down this wall speech. And you know, he's the one who keeps reinserting that, reinserting that phrase, even though despite resistance from most of the professionals.
0: I want to go back to the point you made about ideas. And this was a set of ideas he had developed over a long period of time, in the 60s, and mm-hmm. it was time for choosing speech in 64 throughout uh, the 70s, and what a reversal it was. In terms of American foreign policy, it, turning on its head the way that the establishment viewed the Cold War and and, and, and the leading lights, yeah. Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon yeah. uh, being the two the the designers of 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 detente, implementers as well, and Reagan. You have a good anecdote with uh, Dick Allen. They're kinda of getting ready, uh, ahead of the campaigner and he's and he's like, Well it's gonna be we win, they lose and yeah. we take sophisticated, you know, kinda of complicated problems and, and put them in, in simple terms. Yeah. Talk about how he just turned it all on its head in terms of his approach. And it was thinking about not the way the world is today, but the way he wanted the world to become.
1: Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll try to give it to you in, in just a sentence. And and I say this as you know, a, a student of American diplomatic history and, and most of the Cold War. Every previous Cold War president, from Harry Truman on up through Jimmy Carter, had seen the Cold War as primarily a Competition between two superpowers, two rival superpowers, the United States and Soviet Union, that happened to be a battle of ideas. It happened to have an ideological dimension. And Reagan reversed that. He saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas that happened to be laid on two great, to great powers. And from that flowed a whole new theory of victory. You know, every previous president had seen the Cold War as a challenge to be managed, the Soviet Union as an entity to be contained. You know, they didn't want it to succeed or advance, but they did not envision the possibility of actually defeating it or, or of collapsing it. And, and Reagan envisioned just, just that because he saw Soviet communism as an idea to be defeated rather than seeing the Soviet Union as a nation state to be managed. And, and from that flowed the entire revolutionary strategy.
0: Where was the intellectual history for that? Who who else was was saying this? I mean, he actually had developed this relationship with with Ike, mm-hmm. you know. But but certainly uh, Eisenhower wasn't advancing it in the way you've just described. Where did this come
1: from? Yeah, a lot of it is pretty unique to Reagan. And again, as you mentioned, you know, in the early chapters of my book, I lay out, you know, this really interesting relationship he has with Eisenhower in the 1960s. And, you know, Eisenhower, you know, serving as in some ways an early foreign policy mentor of sorts to to Reagan. I think Reagan would refer to him that way. And even though Reagan reveres Eisenhower and follows some of his principles, especially about, you know, aligning the use of force with policy outcomes, um, the the importance of economic strength for for Mm. military strength, things like that. Reagan takes uh, then takes in a whole new direction uh, uh, in envisioning the the defeat and collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, which is not something I think Eisenhower had ever envisioned or or, or hoped for, um, uh, nor had any other you know, American president. So the idea is, you know, like I said, a lot of it's unique to Reagan. I mean, he had, some of it comes from his Christian faith, mm. um, some of it comes from he's very influenced by Whittaker Chambers' classic book Witness, uh, showing the the moral depravity of uh, of, of communism. Uh, Although, you know Chambers himself was a little more pessimistic, he, he thought that you know, the United States was going to lose the cold, right? So, so Reagan shares his diagnosis of, of communism, but not his uh, his prediction of the outcome. So uh, a lot of it is pretty unique to Reagan. And as our mutual friend and the great scholar Henry Now has pointed out, Reagan was playing with some of these ideas and thinking about them as early as the early 1960s, saying, hey, you know, maybe if we lure the Soviet Union into an arms race, they can't sustain. Their system will collapse and they'll have no choice but to ne- negotiate with us and reenter the family of civilized nations rather than being this, you know, this malevolent rogue state. I
0: want to talk about how he convinced others to follow him in that pursuit. And and one of the most interesting people who on his team who ended up buying into the approach mm-hmm. uh, was an unlikely figure in George Schultz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to get you to comment that. Before we go there, mm-hmm. that's the end state. You know, we win, they lose. And you talk about, it was his kind of revolutionary idea, part of the Reagan revolution. The means to getting there was also pretty unusual. And here I'm talking about peace through strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, something we spent a lot of time focusing on here at the Institute and you and I focused on. And, and here was re- what you write about peace through strength in the book. He said, military power would not just deter aggression, which of course was something he inherited and we had done since the Second World War. You write, it would also fortify negotiations and thus render the need to fight much less likely. Reagan's defense modernization had a diplomatic purpose as much as a military purpose. Is was, was that also unprecedented or or not not employed in in the, certainly in the fashion that that Reagan sought
1: so, yeah, not in the fashion that Reagan sought, you know, you know, to be fair, you know, previous American presidents, you know, uh, Nixon and, uh, and, Kissin- and, and Kissinger as national security advisor in particular, you know, they would think in very sophisticated ways about using military force for diplomatic ends, right? So that that part of the equation other great statesmen had had used. But what Reagan and Schultz developed was this, I think, much, you know, much more novel, innovative way of using military force to fortify diplomacy, to actually defeat the the adversary without fighting. And that that's the part for Nixon and Kissinger again it was about managing the adversary or containing containing the the adversary. And this is why even though you know Schultz uh, and Secretary of Defense Weinberger had their legendary differences and their bureaucratic feuds Schultz was always Supremely supportive of a large defense budget, uh, like uh, of the Pentagon modernization, right? So he was; they were never fighting over over resources, uh, because Schultz saw it as so important for strengthening um, his diplomatic hand, and Reagan certainly saw it that way as well. So that when they were negotiating with uh, with Gorbachev or Gromyko or, or Shevardnadze, you know, the the Soviet foreign ministers. Um, it was not just uh, a war of words, it was not just bargaining or arguing over particular concepts, it was the full might and power of the American military backing up that diplomacy. They, knew, they were squeezing them as they yeah. were negotiating with them. Yeah, it, exactly. And then showing the Soviets that no matter how many more rubles you throw at your military, you will never be able to keep pace with the much more advanced, uh, you know, innovative weapon systems and new platforms the United States was developing. You know, as I, you know, put it, our, our military buildup was about not just about outspending the Soviets, but outsmarting them. And that was implemented through diplomacy.
0: And you, you were made those points also related to the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, which though it was not going to be realized for, you know, perhaps a decade or more later, it had an amazing impact at the time, precisely in the way that you've described. Yeah. And that and that was intentional. So
1: Yeah, it certainly was. And here's where I know there's, you know, plenty of debate among scholars and technical experts over whether SDI was gonna work or could have worked, and plenty of skeptics, but All you need to to read to be convinced of how potent SDI was is read the transcripts of Reagan's summit meetings with Gorbachev, Geneva, Reykjavik, Washington, Moscow, and read what Gorbachev is saying. Gorbachev is terrified of SDI. He's obsessed with SDI. He thinks it's going to work. You know, he's rather bedazzled by American uh, ingenuity and technological uh, uh, capabilities, and he thinks it's going to work. And he knows that if it it was to become operational, it's game over. It would make the Soviet, you know, nuclear missile uh, arsenal completely obsolete and so that's why gorbachev is obsessed with trying to tell gorbachev you got to scrap that you got to get rid of it we got it we got to bargain that away and yet reagan holds holds fast holds fast to it and reagan himself was more realistic you know there's plenty of his comments saying i don't know if and when this will become operational but we got to try we got to try and reagan knew that gorbachev thought it could work and he thought all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna play this out as long as we can go
0: well it was fascinating in reykjavik because on the table yeah much chagrin of members of his team mm-hmm. They're, they're at this moment where they can get rid of the entire nuclear arsenal of both sides. Yeah. And, of course, to your point, Gorbachev says but you have to put SDI as part of this uh, – part of his plan, and Reagan was unwilling.
1: Yeah, unwilling, and he, at one point he scribbles a note to Schultz saying, am I wrong to be holding on to this? And Schultz runs back, no, you're not, Mr. President, you're you're in the right. Um, and again, it was as close as they came to abolishing all, all nukes at Reykjavik. It was revealing just how obsessed Gorbachev was with right. getting rid of SDI. And for Reagan, that was also a little bit of the indicator that is why Reagan believed in trust but verified that if the Soviets aren't willing to eliminate nukes while well, 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 we're still having SDI, uh, maybe they're hedging here a, a, l- a little bit as well. And Reagan was really quite prescient. He also said, look, even if we, us in, this, in the, the Moscow get rid of our nukes, what about a bad actor by, like Libya's Gaddafi? What about another terrorist state getting a hold of nukes? Of course, that's a present concern of ours now. And so that's why I think he was quite visionary in pointing out the need for ballistic missile defense. And, which he was said he
0: would share with the Soviets. And the Soviets, uh, couldn't imagine that would actually happen and was yeah. part of the skepticism. Let's move to some of the personalities. You just talked about George Schultz. And one of the things I think you do well in this book, this is not hagiography. This is not, you know, just seeing only the good. I mean, you, you're, you're clearly pointing out and highlighting areas where there were problems in the Reagan presidency. One area was Reagan as a manager. Mm-hmm. And the constant infighting and leaking within his team in the White House, across uh, the cabinet. Talk to us about that aspect of the presidency and uh, where the dysfunction seemed to be. If you look at just the, the greatest challenge in terms of foreign policy, the national
1: security advisors were cycling in and out. I mean, yeah. uh, from the beginning and then almost throughout. Yeah, six of them in, in eight years. So, yeah, and again, I'm glad you point this out, Roger, because obviously uh, this is a overall a very favorable treatment of President Reagan and his record, and I stand by that. I think the evidence warrants it. But it's not a hagiography. I try to be candid about some of the policy failings and mistakes as well as some of the other deficiencies, and he was not a strong manager. He was he was conflict-averse. He didn't like it when his staff wasn't getting along, and he wouldn't you know step in and arbitrate or, or resolve that and didn't always pay really attention attention to the selection of uh, some people for some some key positions. Uh, and so uh, he, still, he and his team still succeed, uh, you know, despite that, uh, in some ways because of that creative tension sometimes as well, right? You know, in my uh, more humorous moments, I think in the Reagan White House resembled the Rolling Stones, right? Um, <laughs> incredibly talented musicians who are constantly feuding with each other, constantly at each other's throats, and yet when they're all on stage, somehow they still make some magic happen. And, uh, you know, I think we see some of that with some of these uh, Reagan Reagan strategies and politics uh, but, but it bore a personal cost. You know, this came out in my interviews with a number of the senior Reagan hands who rightfully feel... You call it tragic. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they rightfully feel very proud of their policy accomplishments, but they still carry some some scars and traumas from the acrimony, the the leaking, the feuding, the, the backbiting. You and I served in government, Roger. Every administration has this, uh, but the Reagan administration may have had a little bit more than most, um, partly because the stakes were so high. You know, it literally was the fate of the world and the fate of the free, you know, freedom hanging in the balance, partly because these are very strong, opinionated, smart, capable, accomplished people um, who are going to hold... To strongly to their opinions and advocate for them strongly, uh, partly because there's big egos involved. And then you've got a president who, despite his many strengths, um, is not exercising a strong hand to, you know, to crack the whip and keep everyone in line. And so that they, that came with a cost.
0: We talked about this earlier. You could not find anybody who said a bad word about the president, despite them talking about the difficulties and challenges that you call tragic between the teams. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, and this is where, again, another one of these uh, complicated pictures, uh, what comes through as well is his incredible decency as a human being, right? His kindness, his graciousness, he's not holding grudges. Uh, you know, he's not mistreating his staff. Um, and and that's one reason why he inspired so much, I think, loyalty and affection from his staff. Uh, but alongside that, well, you know, he was, you know, averse to conflict and he uh, did not want to be very involved in managing their own differences. And so the the feud and we're not, you know, between him and his people is between his own, his own, his own people. Talk to us about the one example of, of you know, talk about the, the biggest fights that you
0: kind of were surprised or didn't realize kind of how cutthroat and and, and dramatic it was.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, just uh, one example, and you can almost feel the tension in reading the transcript is a um, an NSC meeting sometime in 1987 uh, on the eve of, you know, one of the other uh, one of the big arms control negotiations. And, you um, even though, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, some of Weinberger's last days as his last few months as Secretary of Defense, and Schultz as Secretary of State, and Weinberger is much more skeptical about these negotiations, and Schultz is forward leaning on them, and so Reagan's chairing the NSC meeting. And he says, "All right, well, uh, so let's hear what the um, what the State Department's position is, and let's hear the Pentagon's position." And Schultz says, "Well, I don't want to share the State Department position," um, and and Weinberger says, "Why not?" And Schultz says, "Because if I share it in this meeting, I know I'm going to read about it in the Washington Post tomorrow because you're going to leak it," you know, and Weinberger. <laughs> says I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. How can you say that? And Schultz says, I'm gonna share it privately with the president. And then um I want to say it was Frank Carlucci who was national security advisor at the time. He says it, he turns to uh, a backbencher, I think a Das, a deputy assistant secretary from State and behind Schultz says, Well you you know, you nameless guy, can you tell us state's position? And, and Schultz says don't tell him state's position. You know? So uh <laughs> so you, the president. that's right. Yeah. So that, that's what I mean. I mean this was uh this was not always one harmonious happy family.
0: Well great things are hard to do. Yeah <laughs> (laughs) That's right. Let's take the last few minutes here, and again, we're with Will Imboden, author of the new book called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink, a really monumental achievement, the authoritative treatment of Reagan's foreign policy. Will, of course, you served in a National Security Council staff yourself during President George W. Bush's time in office working on national security strategy. As you're writing this book, as you're doing the research, you're thinking about today. I mean, you're, you're public intellectual, in addition to being a scholar, you write and talk about this stuff all the time. Where do we need a little bit of the Reagan outlook as we think about our greatest challenges today? And it's a bipartisan consensus view that the greatest challenge we face is with China. Yeah. What would you impose or bring in from from your research, from kind of? the Reagan foreign policy to American foreign policy today.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I always have to issue that when this question comes up, the disclaimer that obviously the Soviet Union is not perfectly analogous to, to communist China today. And, you know, certainly, you know, we have more economic interdependence with China now than we did with the Soviets back then. So it's, it's, you know, there are some dissimilarities, but I'm glad you asked that question because I do think the similarities are, are more important and more and more profound. And look, the last time the United States had a great power competition with a nuclear-armed communist power on the Eurasian landmass was the Cold War, was Reagan's years and going head-to-head with the Soviet Union. And so as we're thinking uh, today about the need for a new strategy to, uh, dealing with China, that's certainly a good place to start looking. And I, I think just the top-line takeaway is we got to start with getting the theory of the case right, the big picture. And I, and I mentioned earlier how Reagan conceived of this as a battle of ideas that happened to be between two rival superpowers— and I, I do think that that same theory of the case needs to be applied today with, with, with China, um, is understanding that this is not just a contest between two powerful militaries and economies, between two fundamentally different systems of government, between two fundamentally different worldviews. And from that flows, I think, a number of vulnerabilities with the Chinese Communist Party, their oppression of their own people, uh, certainly their exports, their, their efforts to export uh, authoritarianism. Uh, they're cutting off their, their own people from the free flow of information you know, the Great Firewall, Reagan saw all these rightly as key vulnerabilities in the Soviet Union. That's why he did so much to advocate for human rights and democracy and supporting political and religious dissidents. That's why he did so much in information operations, both overt and covert. and uh, and that's also why he designed, as we talked earlier, his military modernization. No, I keep referring to the modernization, not just the buildup. It wasn't just throwing more money at the Pentagon. It was designing those weapon systems that would outsmart the Soviets. And I think all those pieces of his strategy could apply today uh, to our, our contest with China, as long as we get that big picture theory of the case right.
0: One more on today's events, channeling what you know and have, have written about. Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, Ukraine. And, and on this, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war on Ukraine, we're at this moment where there's discussion about at what point will the United States try to impose an outcome on the Russia Ukrainian war? Mm-hmm. In other words, will the great power of the United States basically use its leverage? And that number one on that list of items it could leverage would be military aid and support mm-hmm. to tell Zelensky, okay, let's end this thing, compromise, let's get an agreement. Mm-hmm. How would Reagan look at that? Because is it, you know, February 22nd, Status quo, anti, or we're we going to give the Russians some gains. What would be a Reagan-esque outlook to this problem?
1: Yeah, I want to be careful here about you know transposing. I can't speak for for President Reagan. Obviously, he isn't isn't with us anymore. Um, but uh, two two points I do want to make that we can see clearly from his record, which I think would be applicable uh, at least in uh, in some ways today. The first is President Reagan always kept faith with and fully supported and fully resourced anyone fighting against Kremlin aggression. Okay. And whether that was the Contras in Nicaragua, certainly the, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan when the Soviet Union had had invaded there, uh, the UNITA rebels in Angola, so on and so forth. And so uh, I think for him, it certainly starts with supporting those who are on the front lines. You know, he wasn't he wasn't interested in deploying American troops through that fighting, but he wanted to make sure that those who are doing their own fighting know that they've got the full support of the United States, including all the weapons and economic aid that, that they need. Um, that's the first point. The second is, yes, he was very committed to a negotiation negotiated outcome uh with with the kremlin but he only wanted to get there after he felt like he could negotiate from a position of strength with the soviets especially with 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 gorbachev uh and when they were willing to to come to the table um i don't know that we're at that point yet with putin i think uh, he may need to feel feel some more pain um uh before uh, you know the time is ripe for some sort of negotiated settlement
0: and of course between those two points is this notion that you he wouldn't want to compromise the freedom of others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh-huh. and I think that's that's the that's the tension here. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's the Donbas or, you know, other contested regions, it would truly be taking away freedoms because that say what you want about Ukrainian Ukraine's democracy, flawed as it may be. They're free people there.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, we, we just very briefly, we see that with President Reagan's support for the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe, the, the Warsaw Pact, you know, he didn't say, Mr. Gorbachev, please uh, gradually reduce that wall, you know, he didn't say, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, move that wall a few more miles inward and let's have a territorial settlement, right? He wanted an end to Soviet occupation and oppression in Central and Eastern Europe because he was keeping faith to those people, those captive peoples too. Dr. Willenboden, let's go to the lightning round over
0: here. This is something you are eminently qualified to answer. This is where we ask our guests to share with us their favorite book on President Reagan. Kind of obvious with this one, but you can surprise us. Uh, Your favorite speech by President Reagan and your favorite quote. Give us—you've done a few of them in our discussion already. Uh, give us all three, two, or just one. What's top of mind for
1: you? Okay, you know, so many favorite books I could cite. Uh, one, one. I want to talk about—I got to give a shout out to our friend Paul Letto, uh, Ronald Reagan and his uh, his quest to abolish nuclear weapons. You know, it's written almost 20 years ago now, but incredibly prescient. One of the first ones to really understand President Reagan's comprehensive Cold War strategy and his his effort to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, the speech is so so hard to pick, uh, but I, I've got to go with the one I start off uh, for the book the uh, June of 82 Westminster Address. Um, uh, I still find it both incredibly moving as rhetoric and incredibly sophisticated as a forward strategy for freedom and winning the Cold War. Quote. So, oh boy, Uh well, one. Okay, uh, it's hard, hard, hard so much to pick one. I, 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 again, with a Westminster dress, it's got to be uh, um, Mar- Marxism-Leninism ending up on the ash heap of history. Every word so perfectly chosen, uh, so much meaning packed in that one. Um, and and it partially came true in his time and I hope that it'll eventually come true as we're thinking about Communist China today.
0: Willem Boat, congratulations on your new book, The Peacemaker look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks
1: for being here today. Thank you, Roger. It was a great pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism.
0: New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.